Welcome back to the Ronnie's Awesome List podcast. I'm super excited to be interviewing author Barry Wittenstein. Barry has authored many children's books, and today we're going to talk about his new book, A Place to Land. Speaking to me from New York, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Barry Wittenstein. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> thank you. So I'm going to start off with the text on the inside of the sleeve where it says, this book is about Martin Luther King Jr. like no other. Can you explain? Well, I think it's because this story, although it's been written about a little bit in adult books, it's never been written in children's literature. And it's the story of how Dr. King, uh, the process by which he wrote his uh, iconic I Have a Dream speech, which he delivered at the uh, March on Washington in 1963. So there's a lot of information that is in this book that is in uh, only kind of a few adult books and none, uh, no information in any children's books. Yeah, I mean, I, I was reading this book and I actually didn't know the story behind it. So it, it was new to me to find out how this legendary speech actually evolved. Yeah, um, the, so yeah, the thing is, I didn't know about it. If you had asked me, a couple of years ago about the March on Washington speech, I would have said, well, you know, happened in the early 60s in Washington, and Martin Luther King, that was his speech, and I didn't know anything else. And so, as as I like to do in many of my books, they inform and hopefully capture the interest of both um, adults and kids. So I'm not surprised that you don't know the story, because unless you're a, a King scholar or really dedicated to writing or understanding his life, no one knows the story. Well, what was that aha moment that made you say, I have to write this as a children's story? Well, that that's a great question. There's kind of a, a few different moments where, you know, I'll find a story and I go, wow, this is interesting to me. So that's kind of the first hurdle. It has to be interesting to me. And then the second hurdle is, is it appropriate for you know, elementary school kids, whatever that age group is? And so then I start trying to write in a way that is appropriate for the age group. And maybe I'll nail it, maybe I won't. I have various stories right now that I think are great stories, but I've not been able to distill it into a, uh, a children's kind of genre. You know what? You, you just write the things. You just write them and you send them out. And if the editors like them, then you begin the process. Uh, I think that all my stories are fantastic. And obviously that's not the case because I write for every story that gets published. There's like 20 that don't. But had the feedback been, this is kind of too obscure. No one's really interested you know, in the details of it or the writing is too poetic. I would have gone, okay, well then. That's kind of the way it is, and would have moved on. So there wasn't just like one moment. It was seeing the story, being interested, you know, then doing research and trying to write it in a palatable kind of genre, and then sending it out, and it all worked out. I mean, it really all worked out. Yeah, no, it was a great story. I, again, I've never heard of it, so I feel educated myself in, in knowing what happened. Um, but taking a deeper dive into the book, you know, you talk about the Willard Hotel where he stayed and the many famous dignitaries and people, but you specifically mentioned Lincoln a few times more than others. And so I was wondering if you could talk about the significance of, of Lincoln in the story. Well, it was the, um, 
100th year anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. There was a connection between King and Lincoln and freeing the slaves 100 years prior and King wanting to take further steps to unchain the African Americans in the country who were very much oppressed back in, in the 50s and in the early 60s. And it was just, it seemed to be a perfect kind of um, parallel of Lincoln staying at the hotel, him, uh, Dr. King standing in front of the statue, the memorial, his appreciation of who Lincoln was. So it was a, one of the layers of, of thematic glue that connected different parts of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, you also mentioned John F. Kennedy and how he was slow to embrace civil rights, and that actually surprised me. I didn't know he was slow to embrace civil rights. Well, he was. Um, he was concerned about the next election. He was concerned about the Democrats in the South. He didn't want to push too hard. Also, his administration was wiretapping, you know, Dr. King. You know, Jacob Hoover was wiretapping him. And you know, they were using the information that they found against Dr. King to try to dissuade him from taking part. And it wasn't until, well, let me back up a little bit. People were afraid of Dr. King. There was a fear that all these scary African-Americans were going to come to Washington and just cause havoc and just riot and just tear the whole system down. And the city was kind of on lockdown. I mentioned in the book that there was a lot of, uh, of soldiers who were marching in the street and they had helicopters across the river. They were ready to quash any civil rights activism and, and violence. So they were afraid of that. Uh, the Kennedy administration was afraid of that also. And they had never heard Dr. King speak. Dr. King was a well-known orator in the black community, but the white community didn't really know him. So there were a lot of unknowns, like who is this guy? Is, is he working with the communists? Is he having like all these different affairs? What's really going on with Dr. King? What's going to be the result of embracing of Kennedy and his administration, embracing the civil rights movement at that time? And so Kennedy tried to dissuade the leaders to not do the march, to not have the the uh, African Americans, well, at that point they called them Negroes in the street, and maybe it was um, it was one of King's advisors. And the name escapes me, who said, you know, the Negroes are already in the streets. And so there's no turning back. And you know, it wasn't until the Johnson administration that uh, the Civil Rights Acts and the Voting Acts were passed by Congress. So Kennedy kind of flirted with it, kind of pushed a little bit, wasn't really embracing the movement, and it took LBJ yeah, I mean, what I found really interesting is that the book didn't go into the discriminating language that was used back then, which I think would have been tough to get away with, but it wasn't shy uh, from mentioning the brutal history of racial hate with police dogs and the water jets and the beatings and stuff like that. And so I did read this with a kid and it turned into a longer conversation. Was that the purpose of mentioning that in the book? Well, the purpose was telling the truth. I asked myself, why, why become a writer? Why be a writer? Why write the book if you can't tell the truth? But it wasn't, you know, any pivotal moment in the story of the writing of the speech. But the horrors, I mean, how can you write about the civil rights movement if you can't include 
you know, the horrors of what was motivating the African-Americans to demand their equal rights. Mm -hmm. That's it's half the story. Now, I'm sure that there are books about Dr. King that don't delve as deeply into that. But I wrote it. Neil Porter, who was the editor, could have said, this is too much. Jerry Pinckney, the illustrator, might have said, I don't think this is appropriate. But no one said that. And mm -hmm. and, and rightly so, because I, I, I don't think I stated it in a gruesome kind of way. It's it's written as fact. Right. I mean, it, it definitely, you definitely feel the tension, the, 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 the motivation behind everything. Like everything that goes, that leads up to that speech um, is all a part of it. So I'm curious to know the connection that you have about writing about the African-American heroes, such as Sonny Rollins, um, uh, Plumsy Green, and now Martin Luther King Jr. Well, I write about a lot of different people, and many of those stories aren't getting published. Now, why is that? Do I feel a, more of a, a connection to writing about the African-American experience? Uh, are people looking for stories about the African-American experience? I, I will tell you that it, as a Jewish person, and the Jews and the blacks have always kind of felt a camaraderie and terms of being oppressed. And just growing up in a, a liberal house, you know, in the 60s, and a liberal neighborhood, I always felt some sort of simpatico with the civil rights movement. And I, I don't know why. The Martin Luther King story, you know, his life is synonymous with the civil rights movement and racism and equality. But it was the process of writing which really captured my interest, because I'm always thinking about that as well in my own writing. It's never my intention to write something about Dr. King, because what hasn't been written about Dr. King? There's like a hundred books about Dr. King in the kid-lit world, but the whole process of his writing it really interested me. And luckily, no one had written about it. Mm -hmm. um, I wish someone had. It's a great story. I wish, you know, 10 years ago someone had. Someone has, you. <laughs> Right. That's kind of one of the advantages of getting older, in that you, you kind of remember stuff or know stuff from eras that you were alive in, and some of those stories are important to retell. Mm -hmm. So what do you hope readers, both children and adults, will take away from this book? Well, well, first of all, it reintroduces and introduces people to the March on Washington. It educates them. And it will educate the parents reading to the children and maybe the grandparents reading to the children about what that was about. And it will introduce to the, the kidlet world and, and the parents reading the different people who were involved. It wasn't just Martin Luther King getting up there. It was a long process by which the speech was written. And also King's genius and confidence that the night before the speech, he still had not put it on paper. And then the genius of being able to kind of switch gears and go into a preaching mode. I didn't know that he had set pieces that he had used over the years so he could go kind of from one kind of set piece to another. So the I Have a Dream was a set piece that he knew very well, knew by heart, that he had spoken on a few different occasions prior to the March on Washington. And so... When Mahalia Jackson said, tell him about the dream, 
he immediately took thing off the written speech off to the side and went into the set piece where he was able to preach. And there's a lot I would like people to take away from this. Just general understanding of, of the event, uh, his confidence to write the thing the night prior to the march, and then change gears in the middle of the speech. I mean, that's just wonderful. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, other another side of, of Dr. King that, again, has been written about you know, intellectual adult books, but not in the Kitlet genre. Make sense? That makes total sense, and I think that's wonderful. Uh, and, and you're so right. I mean, I, I don't often feel educated or learning something new when I'm reading books to kids, and I was inspired and enjoyed the, reading it. Um, and it was a history I just didn't know. Um, so you worked with Caldecott medalist Jerry Pinkney. He's the right. illustrator. And um, this, is, this book has a very different technique to his usual body of work. It's got collage and watercolor and digital uh, mixed in, um, which, I, which I love. I mean, it was um, so interesting the way it enhanced the text to me uh, with the energy and the dimension it brings to it. So I was wondering if you could tell me more about what it was like working with such an amazing illustrator and any creative input you had to the visuals? Well, I had zero creative input, and I'm glad, (laughs) because I know nothing about illustration. So when Neil Porter told me that Jerry Pinckney had agreed to illustrate the book, I didn't know what to expect. I expected greatness, because Jerry is maybe one of the top five illustrators of the last 50 years Mm -hmm. in the field. So I knew it was going to be great, but I had no input. Now, when everything comes back, but was I going to say anything to Mr. Pinckney or to Mr. Porter, who are at the top of their game in the field? I mean, I'm, I'm a newbie, and they both had a vision that grew out of the words. The words start the whole process. But Jerry's visuals bring the story to another level. I mean, I really feel with this book that the visuals make the words come alive, as was this case where Jerry's images are just out of this world. Yeah, they are. He will often compliment the words and say, I was motivated by the story. And that, that was the input I had. My writing, which he embraced, and then I just took to another level. Had it been another editor or another illustrator, you know, it would not... It would not be this book. Mm-hmm. It maybe be pretty good. I can't imagine it being as good. And it was really a perfect storm of the editor who believed in the words, who presented it to, to Jerry. I mean, you're not going to present something to Mr. Pinckney that is not an important piece of writing. And I really could not be happier. I mean, uh, it's... It's perfect. I'm not sure if I'll ever do something as great as this book. You know, I mean, I'll always be writing, but I'm not sure if anything could be as great as this book. So I'm very uh, honored to uh, to be part of the process. Well, I certainly hope you will be and that you'll come back and talk to me again. So um, in your book, you dedicate it to Robert Solomon, and I was wondering who Robert Solomon is. I thank you for asking that mm-hmm. question. That was a, a friend of mine who passed away about 12 years ago. And he was a dear friend from growing up who was always interested 
in the civil rights movement. We would talk for hours about the rights of those who were, were fighting for equal rights. And he was involved in the Big Brother program. He did volunteer work. He was just kind of a, a regular guy whose you know, name will never be up in lights, as they say. There'll never be a book written about him. But always very giving, you know, always, you know, looking out for others. And, in fact, he had bought the Eyes on the Prize a video series. And when he passed away, that's like, that's one thing I wanted uh, to keep of his about the civil rights movement. So he was a very dear friend, and I was heartbroken when he passed away, and I just thought that this would honor his life by mm -hmm. writing something about a, a subject that he and I would often speak about. Can you tell me about yourself and your journey as an author? Wow. <clears throat> well, it's been circuitous, to say the least. Um, now, I went to San Francisco State. I graduated with um, a BA in English. I was writing a lot of poetry, uh, performing poetry in North Beach. Moved down to LA, was in a band, was writing songs with a friend of mine. Came back to New York. You know, fast forward, I always knew I was a creative person. You know, I was trying to find my niche. So um, there was poetry that didn't work out. The songwriting, which I had one cut on the radio back in the 90s, but that's a tough field. I've written for Major League Baseball. Anything that was creative, I always felt the pull. Then took a lot of online classes, many at UCLA Extension, some here in New York. And the classes were in creative nonfiction. They were in memoir. They were in greeting card. You know, I even wrote a, a proposal for NEA, National Endowment of the Arts, on President Truman and integration. So writing and being creative always been at the forefront. My first success happened 2017, and I did not want to leave this life without, you know, making my mark. And that continues to drive me. Mm -hmm. You know, I want the world to know that I have something to contribute. It's not going to be war and peace, but it's going to be something. And so that's always driven me. And Luckily, I was able to sign the Pumpsy book, and then other books have come out of that. And so, you know, this is a genre I feel I can do, and I guess I've been a little bit successful. The, the Band-Aid book is up for some awards, the Blue Bonnet Award and other awards. Mm -hmm. so, Congratulations. You know, it, yeah, so it's definitely something that fills my need. Always been creative, and um, this is kind of where I've ended up 40 years after I finished college. Oh, there's a lot of parents out there who think about writing children's books themselves, and I was wondering if you have any advice that you can give to others interested. First of all, it's a great community, a great writing community, the, the kid-lit community. People are very supportive and very giving, and much different than the music community, which I used to be a member of, which, you know, is more competitive, not as friendly, not as supportive. You know, there are so many people in the kidlit field who want to give their time and want to help those on the bottom rung. So I would say, you know, it's a very welcoming field to go into. You know, not a lot of money to be made, especially with picture books. 
very few people can make a living with picture books. These days, you know, nonfiction is hot, nonfiction bios, although I'm getting the sense editors are getting a little bit too inundated with nonfiction bios. If you want to get good at anything, you have to dive in, swim in the waters, and read a lot and join SCBWI. Do you know that organization? That, uh, I Society do, but Children. do you want to tell my, my listeners? Yes, Children, Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, scbwi.org. And it's a, a fabulous uh, community where you can you know, get together and hear illustrators and writers and agents and editors who are professionals in their field. And it gives you an opportunity to meet them, to get their advice, to to hear their own journey. So it's it's really been invaluable. That's kind of it, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. it's um, and that's like the first thing. Join SCBWI and go to the conferences. There's a lot of people out who will help. You have to really have you know do a lot of writing and spend some time and be patient mm-hmm. and not give up. That's great advice. Um, so my final question, which I always like to end with, is what's next? Well, I'm always writing, always pitching. But right now, I'm pitching two stories. No one and Kidlet has written about these two topics. I do have one book coming out next year called uh, Oscar's American Dream, which is uh, historical fiction about how a store goes through all these changes depending upon the changes in the society. So I follow kind of the history. So you're saying the history of the country through this one store. Then in two years, I have a... um, Another book coming out, but it's untitled, and it's about a, an old painter. So that's what's coming up, but I'm always writing. It all sounds very so exciting, so and I hope you come back when you get the other books published as well. Well, sure. I mean, absolutely. Uh, I love speaking with you. Thanks so much for your interest in, in speaking with me and the interest in A Place to Land and the other books. And um, it was great speaking with you. Thank you, and you too. It was a really lovely book.